1975, Christmas Eve. Tommy Ziegler is just kind of your average guy. It pretty much untangles the lives of half of this small town in Florida. Four people ended up dead in a furniture store with the lights off at different times during the evening. Tommy Ziegler is rushed off to the hospital, went in for emergency surgery, and later is booked for murder. Your heart kind of swings, you know, from one end to the other. You know, he did it, he didn't do it. It's been like going to a time portal every time. I go back into the original documents or speak to someone who was there. Well, my mindset when we started the trial is we think we have a decent chance of winning this trial. We thought and still believe we have an innocent client. There's no one man can shoot eight guns in four seconds to expend in 30 shells or whatever. I don't care who he is. Once, as an investigator, you prove to yourself that this man is literally being crucified by the state, it ruins your own life. I mean, I've served in the service. I've served in Vietnam. I've represented a lot of people, done a lot of things. It has been, that was probably the worst moment of my life, is standing beside Tommy Ziegler, believing in my heart that he was innocent, and have the judge sentence him to die. I don't want to be let go. I want that new trial. I want those 12 members of that jury to stand up and say not guilty. When Ziegler woke up the day before Christmas in 1975, he was a master of his world. He said he was worth a million dollars. On occasion, he was known to ride shotgun in a police cruiser with his buddy, the chief of police. He and his wife of over eight years bred Persian cats for showcase. When Ziegler wakes up today, it's 3.45 a.m. on death row at Union Correctional Institution in a remote outpost filled with barbed wire in northern Florida. He prays and reads the Bible. When he leaves his six-foot-by-nine-foot cell to meet visitors, Ziegler, who is nearing the age of 71, is shackled at the wrists, waist, and ankles. Those 115 words took me 45 seconds to say. It took the students weeks of reporting and countless hours of editing to translate into words the sharp dichotomy of who Ziegler once was and who he now is. This is the crux of the Medill Justice Project. Yes, as students in the class, you remember traveling, for many of us, the first time we've traveled in pursuit of a story. You remember repeated attempts at locating sources, whether it's cold calling numbers you think might belong to a source, reaching out to countless experts to find one person who will answer your questions, or knocking on doors of places you think a source might have lived. And you remember the marathon sessions. So uh, I just think we should get started. Um, this is going to be the, the first of several possible marathon sessions. I don't know quite how far we're going to get today. Um, I hope you all had a chance to look at the draft that I sent back to you. Weeks into the investigation, the students are asked to take all of the information they've compiled and work in teams to write 500-word sections. Each section focuses on a different aspect of the case, from DNA evidence to the death penalty the alleged self-inflicted gunshot wound, to the implications of the Roaches hearing all of those shots in four seconds. At Northwestern, I think we get a lot of practice at gathering information, but I think the process of taking that 
and creating something that is easily understandable, that is digestible by someone who has no background on the events of the case has been really difficult, but has been also really rewarding to kind of pour through each line of what we have in writing and to try and make that, you know, not to sell it to anyone, but rather to make it so that, you know, when they read this line, they understand exactly what we have found based on the experts that we've talked to, based on the interviews that we've conducted. Um, and it's, it's, such a, it's such a meticulous process. It, it bears down even on a single word in a sentence. But that kind of thought and that kind of uh, carefulness that you bring to a journalistic piece like this helps you think about the case in a lot of new ways that you would kind of just take for granted. In previous classes that I've taken, you know, you just kind of get so bogged down in the information that you assume that everyone else knows and will understand, you know, the patterns that you've drawn together, but you can't take that for granted. And as a result, you know, talking with Professor Klein and my classmates, we've pointed out some important pieces of information that we've really nailed down in follow-up interviews. I've, I've interviewed um, several experts at least, five or six times at this point, just to make sure I have exactly what they think down on paper and that I can convey that idea to someone who's reading the story. And so, you know, it's been draining, but incredibly rewarding when it comes to thinking about the case and maintaining an objective um, scope of, of what has happened. I mean, I think it's kind of funny because it's almost like, gosh, looking for a unicorn, you know, you're, you're going through this journey and you're like, does that exist? Can I write the perfect story in 500 words? And you can't, you can't at all. But I mean, that's why it's so nice to have Alec on board because I've personally been able to learn so much from him, especially in terms of like how to tell a cohesive story that's both enjoyable and kind of gets the job done that quickly, you know, but I mean, it was a challenge. It's interesting to have to do all this research and then finally jump into the pool, you know. Then the class comes together to edit the story as a whole. You've all done great reporting, so it's not about the good reporting that you've done. I mean, some, you've, you've practically done every person who's alive, you know, uh, from this case from 40 years ago, and you've gotten all these great records and you have some good findings. But investigative reporting isn't just about the gathering of the information, it's then the, the uh, putting all that information together into a cohesive story that is fair, accurate, thorough. And there's so much that has to happen to get that in shape, and you'll see it as we go through. But I just wanted you to adjust your expectations, because I'm not sure if we're going to make it. Um, but I also, it requires that you're going to have to be fully committed 100% if you want to try to get it done. And if we don't end up publishing a story, as you know, that's never been the primary objective of the class, where the, the objective is to learn something, hopefully about yourselves, but also about investigative journalism. That is the topic of the class. Uh, whether we publish a story is secondary. What starts as a somewhat shaky collection of separate and distinct sections slowly evolves into a 7,000-plus word story, each phrase contemplated, all questions answered every single detail fact-checked and sourced before it's given to a lawyer to review. I think you've put yourself in position to, to do a story. The raw material is there, but we won't publish something unless it's absolutely bulletproof. Uh, forgive the <laughs> expression, given the kind of case we're working on, but it has to be 100% bulletproof. All of the students weigh in on all of the sections, regardless of which they originally wrote. I know I mentioned this before, but I, I ask for your patience. So I need everybody to pay attention, even if it's not the section that you drafted yourself. Because 
you, you could bring something to the table, ballistics, that might help four seconds, or even if you're not on ballistics, but this is a team project, and, and every single word that we include has to be prosecuted to the nth degree to make sure that it's absolutely perfect. So we're, I, I want to start with four seconds because uh, I want us to focus first on the main findings, the four findings that we've discussed. Four seconds, self-inflicted, Edward Williamson and Felton Thomas before we then go back to the top to figure out how to shape that and then the two background sections on DNA and death penalties. Does that make sense? So starting with four seconds, um, remember this is a team project so I, I want to hear from you, but each time we start a new section, um, we want to draw the reader in. We're asking them to commit to roughly 4,000 words. By the time we're done, it would probably be closer to five. That's a huge commitment of time, and unless it's your parents or your siblings, I don't even know about your siblings, but your, if you want even your parents to read it, you've got to give them a reason to get into the story. So every time you get to a new section, the top of four sections, think of that as the beginning uh, of the story all over again. And as, as such, that should draw the reader in with a powerful lead. And even for those of you who are not uh, journalism students, I think it's the two of you, it's the same principle for, for any kind of storytelling or, or movie for that matter which is you need to draw the reader in. You have to give them a reason. What's a, what's a way that we could possibly get into this? Many of you have spoken to the Roaches. I've heard from them as well. And, and do we want to start with that? So any suggestions or thoughts? Yeah, Morgan. Um, I'm imagining something like Ken and Linda Roach thought they heard firecrackers on Christmas Eve mm -hmm. and didn't realize until later that they heard gunshots. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. I like that. Hold that thought. So by the way, Morgan holds that thought for at least 20 minutes. While the class contemplates the weather in Florida on that Christmas Eve, the type of car the roaches were driving, who was in the car with them, the time of the sunset that night, what they were talking about before they drove past the store, what they were going to eat for dinner that night. The class eventually settles on, on a brisk Christmas Eve in 1975, Ken Roach was behind the wheel of a Ford Torino while his wife, Linda, sat beside him a gaggle of children in the back, looking forward to a feast of shrimp and oysters at her mother's. Suddenly, boom. The marathon sessions tend to follow this pattern, a series of highly specific nuanced questions followed by highly specific nuanced answers. Repeat. Five hours later, the class has covered 609 words. Now, onto the self-inflicted wound section of the story. And so they sent him into exploratory surgery to determine the extent of the damage caused by... Mm -hmm. They knew he'd been shot. They knew he'd been shot in the abdomen. Yeah. They were wondering what it hit. So yeah, the extent of the damage was accurate. Caused by the bullet that had... Now we say it grazed his abdomen, right? But didn't I, I thought it blew a hole straight through him. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it blew a hole through his lower torso. But who uh, says it was deadly? Almost deadly. I mean, several people. Not the ballistics experts, but I mean, like, people who were on the scene? Some of the people we talked to, the doctor we talked to, he said if it had his abdomen, it could have been deadly. Mm -hmm. um, at trial, mm -hmm. Gleason himself said... Come back, let's go back to that. So, so it, it had blown a hole right through his... his Torso, right? Lower right torso. 
Yeah, we were struggling with the vocabulary a bit because you want to say abdomen, but it's not technically. Well, I want to get to the abdomen later, but yeah. first I want to get the idea that the bullet literally cleared a hole straight through his entire body. Because that, that shows you that, I mean, this was a, you know, powerful shot that he took. But so when we say that you said the lower right um, part of his torso, but what, the torso is, is the torso, is, that, is it the whole, what is the torso? Is it, it's the whole midsection, right? So couldn't we just say that it blew a hole right through his torso? I mean, and then get, we can get more specific later. Is that fair? I think so. And then the other thing is, at the time, so the doctor was saying, how critical was it? Like, did he, was he you know, in jeopardy of, of dying? Or I thought he was like near death almost. Or that, you know, because he, he'd, lo he'd also lost blood and... Uh, Gleason was asked, uh, could it have proved fatal? Yes, if it had struck his abdomen. So, so in it, when you say if it had struck his abdomen, we mean um, where exactly? If it had struck, uh, which part of the abdomen was he saying that it would have been any part? Any part of it. The editing sessions have become famous or perhaps infamous because they take so long and uh, they're now known as marathon sessions and I think the term is appropriate because we uh, will be in the classroom for 10, 12, uh, even longer hours straight uh, with almost no breaks at all, going over every single word of the draft to make sure that we're being fair thorough and accurate. And what I want students to learn is that investigative journalism is, is difficult and that, you know, we every single word counts and how you say things matters and that there's so much nuance to what you say and how you say it and that we should be sort of mindful of, of, of the context, the weight, uh, the specific word or phrase, the placement of, of quotes, all of that, it has an impact on people and uh, it's important that we're fair, you know, and that we're really careful. And to me, that's something that students need to learn, especially if they're going to be journalists who write for, for the public because their words do carry weight and have an impact. So I want to make sure that they, they come away from the experience careful and thoughtful about what they, uh, what they write. What this class really taught me how to do is to report and to go and interview people and put yourself out there and spoke to a lot of lawyers, learned a lot of legal jargon. Um, and you have to take all these facts and you can't just be content knowing the bare surface of things. You can't say, oh, okay, they weren't entered into court proceedings. That could have been useful. We're going to write a story. You have to ask, why did that happen? What was this legal terminology? What procedural or substantive bar did this have in court? Why, what, what rule doesn't allow this to be allowed on a direct appeal versus a post-conviction motion? And I think Alec making us kind of dig into those questions and really like, you know, hammer those down by repeatedly and repeatedly interviewing people has taught persistence and accuracy. You're not gonna have an accurate story unless you really get down to the nitty gritty of every single detail. So getting all of that, you know, you have more information than you can possibly even imagine altogether. And then you have to kind of narrow that and funnel it into a story that's gonna be, you know, comprehensive for someone to read and understand who hasn't necessarily learned about this case before. And, you know, I still think that our story is working on that. I think our story has a lot of information and jargon right now that we need to clarify and make compelling to a reader who might not know so much about law or the Tommy Ziegler case.
my hope is that students learned how to be a better reporter, but not just how to be a better reporter, how to how to do things with honor and to do things with precision and to be sort of relentless in the gathering of information and to be professional in the process. But even beyond that, I, I, I always hope that students learn something about themselves in this experience. And for each student, that may be different. But um, this class, I think, is a challenge for, for most students to sort of go beyond their comfort zone to do something they've never done before, where the stakes are quite high. Somebody, in this case, is on death row. so doesn't get much more serious than that. So this is real life. This isn't sort of, you know, theoretical. There's a lot hanging in the balance. People in the field may not want to talk to our students. They may be hostile. They may be elusive. They may be confusing. All these things that students have to overcome, where to find records, how to decipher those records, um, what to make of what people are telling them, the conflicting accounts. It requires sort of, you know, a level of sophistication in how they process information, how they deal with failure, how they deal with, you know, doors being slammed in their face or other roadblocks. But I think all that is useful, even if you don't go into journalism, because, you know, in life there are going to be challenges, there are going to be difficult moments, and, and we all have to figure out how to navigate that. And our investigations are, are difficult, and um, I think it's uh, an opportunity for students to figure out how to problem solve, how to overcome, how not to give up, how to persevere. So I hope they learn something about themselves and, and come away from the experience changed in, in, a, in a better way.